The work that excites me is not work that is concentrated on best outcomes or the worst outcome. It's work about trying to examine what this new landscape is doing to us as people. Welcome back to Futureverse, a podcast centered around climate fiction and how it helps us imagine our way forward through climate uncertainty. Hello, I am Ramanan Raghavendran. And I'm Molly Wood. Ramanan and I are climate investors and storytellers, so a big part of our job is to try to imagine the future-shaping power of new systems, technologies, perspectives, and that perspectives part is where climate fiction comes in. It provides an amazing medium for contextualizing and humanizing and imagining these possible futures. And today, we're joined by novelist and essayist Nathaniel Rich. He's a prolific writer of both climate-inflected fiction and nonfiction, but today we're mostly going to focus on his second novel, Odds Against Tomorrow, although we have questions about his other books. And that book was published a little over 10 years ago. It introduces us to the cynical world of fear-mongering for profit, and yet, spoiler alert, these fears are revealed to be well-founded when a hurricane strikes New York. From there, the focus turns to surviving and then living with the realities of a worst-case scenario. Nathaniel is also the author of Losing Earth, which charts the emergence of climate change onto the political radar in the 1980s, which we're going to talk a little bit about, and how inaction and frustration set us on the path to where we find ourselves today, not acting and frustrated. His most recent book is Second Nature, which is a unique exploration of the post-natural world where the human footprint can be found virtually everywhere. Nathaniel, it is a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. We'll start with an earth-shatteringly broad question, as we are wont to do here. Your literary and journalistic career has taken you across many themes and topics. You know, what, what was your journey to focusing more on something you've called a cliche elsewhere because we use it so much, your journey to climate change and to humanity's relationship with nature? What, what led you to that point? Yeah. I mean, I, I think of it as having two parallel tracks. I mean, one is my own personal interest in, in the issue as a, you know, a human being in the world and a, someone who considers himself a responsible citizen of the world. And so I had growing concern about environmental issues since, you know, really since childhood, but that's, I've concerned concerns about all kinds of <laughs> things that I don't choose to write about. What, what drew, drew me to writing about it I think was a frustration I felt as a reader, as a reader of fiction and nonfiction and, and, you know, daily journalism, but also narrative journalism that I kept finding that as I read pieces about climate change, environmental damage more broadly, that they were all leaving something out that, that, you know, they, there was a very, you know, I had a very strong grounding in the scientific facts and the politics, the history to some extent but it's it felt very removed from my not not even so much my daily life, but my inner life that it was being spoken about in this abstract way, one in this buffet of kind of disasters and anxieties that that we face as a society. And I felt like there hadn't been and again, this is more than ten years ago that the landscape has has changed quite a lot. But I felt that there hadn't been a very serious and imaginative grappling with what this meant for us, you know, not what it meant for, I don't know, biodiversity or for sea level rise that that was covered pretty well, but what it meant for all of us going about our lives in the society that we're in, in the, in the democracy that we're in, how is it seeping into 
our personal lives? How is it seeping into the way we thought about the future individually, personally? How did it affect our relationships? The little decisions that you make a thousand times a day. What was the knowledge of what was coming doing to us? And I felt like there was a real opportunity to grapple with these issues in a more personal, emotional, philosophical even manner. And that to do so, but to do so, you'd have to do it through storytelling. And I don't think I necessarily articulated all of these things at the time. I think the, the way it, if you asked me 15 years ago, I would just say, you know, it's annoying that all cli- pieces about climate change are boring. You know, like I know what they're going to say. You know, you read the headline, you know, you know what the next 10 paragraphs are going to be. The familiar tropes, the conventions, the warnings, et cetera. It's like you know, narratively, you know, as shocking as the material was, it was narratively uh, dead on the page. Mm-hmm. And it, it seemed like such a, such a disappointment because, of course, there's no higher stakes. I, I feel there's no higher stakes issue in the world than than the question of whether we will, our civilization will survive. And so I was trying to figure out ways to get at that. And I think it was, that's what brought me to the stories that I, I began to write both in, in fiction and, and as well as in nonfiction. One of, before we turn more specifically to the book, one of the the kind of central theses of this podcast is this idea that imagining these potential futures, putting them you know, into this fictional context is a way to process and deal. And I wonder how, especially having done these deep dives, both in fiction and in nonfiction, where you find yourself. <laughs> and before we get to the book specifically, but Mitchell, this, you know, Odds Against Tomorrow's protagonist, who is sort of animated by imagining disaster all the time. What's your level of fear and anxiety after doing this work for so long? Are you him? Yeah, of course, as I'm in every character. But I, I, one thing I do share, I think, with Mitchell is that there is a level of catharsis that I experience by going more deeply into the the horror of it and into the particularities of it. You know, I find it sort of oddly soothing to like the like, especially with Ozzy and Samara, people would ask me all the you know, ask me all the time, like, you know, did you make yourself go crazy? Because it's full of just worst case scenarios and very realistic like projections that are all based in, you know, everything in it is real. It's all the, the, the facts are all nonfiction uh, in the in the novel. I'm gonna say and interject that I was kind of hoping it wasn't as real as it turned out to be. Like I did Google a lot of the stuff you put in there and I was like, damn it. Yeah, because I knew that people would Google the stuff, you know, and, uh-huh. and and it was very important to me that you know if that that you it was it was it all clung to this sort of skeleton of reality because if you were to Google something about you know if you were to Google like is the Yellowstone volcano real like is that has that really is it due to erupt and will destroy all of humanity and and if it was like no this is something this guy made up. You would lose a, the whole, the, the stakes would be destroyed. The, the dramatic stakes would be destroyed because the, the, in many cases, the dramatic stakes, it's dramatic because it is real. So the characters are responding to, you know, and it's dramatic for the reader for the same reason. And so unfortunately, the Yellowstone volcano is real. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, and so is everything else. But I, I find like him, you know, the more, the more I research, you know, you get, you get past the, the sort of dread and terror into this sort of other place that it's probably some combination of coming to terms with it, some level of dark, dark humor, maybe for some of these things, some, probably some kind of um, numbing 
aspect to it, a kind of like exposure therapy, maybe probably the best way of thinking about it. But ideally it hopes, my hope is that it brings, that the reader can come along on this journey and, and that you get past the fear and you get into a place of a sort of a deeper communion with the information and a, and a place where you see things with greater clarity. And, and, and hopefully what that allows one to do is to, and then this is, this is what has happened for me in writing about this stuff and, and reading books about it, is you get to a place where you have at least greater clarity about your own life and what you can do and where, how you want to direct your own energies and where do you want to place your anxieties and your hopes. And so I think it's the act of self, ultimately it's, it, it's uh, the goal is self-reflection. I think that's something that narrative writing is uniquely able to further. We're going to dig a little deeper in, into the into the book and uh, on odds against tomorrow. That is, and it's just interesting because we're sitting here discussing it, and you know, your life has moved on, right? The, the book is now ten years old. If you were to write it today, <laughs> terrifying you know, if you, sentence, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but if you were to write it today, if there were a revised edition to come out next week, and you've got ten more years under your belt, and you know, how we're dealing with climate change, the financial structures that are emerging. You know, we can talk endlessly about polarization in society and a certain sense of public hysteria. Would you change anything in the book? Is it a cop-out to say no? <laughs> I, would, I would not. I mean, I, is, I, 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 I really wouldn't. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, 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 I worked very hard to make sure that the facts were all accurate. And I had a, I was terrified that I got something wrong, of course. And I was terrified also in the months before publication, and this sounds extraordinarily vain or, you know, narcissistic or something, but, and it is, I guess, but I was terrified that the, once Hurricane Sandy was on the weather radar, you know, <laughs> was predicted to hit New York, I was terrified I'd have to throw out the book because um, I knew exactly what would happen when a hurricane hit. Uh, New York City. I'd studied the charts and the reports by the Army Corps of Engineers and all of the rest. And I felt like it was going to be, they'd have to cancel the publication because it was too on the nose. And I was, if anything, I was like grateful that it was as as horrible as it was. It wasn't that, <laughs> it wasn't that enough to cancel the entire book, but which it sounds is horrible and extremely shameful statement. But that, you know, but, but, but the, the, the point is like, actually everything stood up you know, to, mm -hmm. to the facts. I was also terrified writing it because it was, I was writing in the near term and I'll never do this again, writing in, in a book that's set in the future, but the near term future, which is yeah. very, very unusual. I knew at the time, but it had dramatically, it had to be that way. But every year I had to change, you know, it took me six years to write the thing. Every year I'd have to revise based on <laughs> some things that had been predicted then happened. And then other things were more likely to happen than, pre you know, and so that was a constant, constant anxiety. But in terms of the act, the actual finished result, no, I'm, I'm proud of it. And, and I think it, it stands up and I, you know, if I, and I am, I am writing a novel now that's in this uh -huh. realm that I won't, I won't say very much about, but, but are there things I'm doing differently in that book to write about this theme? Uh, yes, of course, very different, but it's a different type of project and it has its own demands. And in terms of Vods Against Tomorrow, I mean, I think it, it, it held up, but it also, it was, it's a book of that, you know, for that time, it was the right book to write. It, you know, it made sense for me. And I think, it, and, and then for the, uh, for the audience in a way that I could not have possibly, you know, predicted or planned for.
One of the things that I found most interesting about this book, and you can tell me if I made this up or misinterpreted it, but you know, it's you've got this paranoid protagonist, Mitchell, and he's imagining these detailed nightmare scenarios for profit and for clients. And very few of them up front are related in or rooted in climate change, right? It's like this simmering kind of back burner. He's imagining viruses and nuclear attacks. And the book is sort of describing worsening drought and heat and these agricultural concerns by Elsa. And so it's sort of like you, the reader, it's almost like literally dramatic irony. You know, this thing is going to come. And then the hurricane is the real disaster, was that, did I imagine that? Did you do that on purpose? Like it's this, you know, it's nature that gets you while you're looking at everything else? That's a good question. I mean, I think I wanted to reflect the broad range of anxieties about, I mean, when I wrote the novel, I didn't, I didn't set out to write a climate novel. I mean, the term climate fiction, the first time I heard the word cli-fi, climate fiction was in the NPR piece about the book, which I think was like the, the first example, as far as I know, of, of in the sort of publicly in publication using that term was, was about Oz Against Tomorrow. And so I saw it at the time of, of composition as a, as a book about anxiety about the future. And so then there was a question of what are the anxieties? And, and then I wrote what I felt like were the most realistic ones. And it turned out a lot of them were climate related, but, but you're right. There's, there's a prediction of a plague, you know, there's a, there's um, terrorism, there's um, financial meltdowns, there's foreign policy stuff, nuclear stuff. And so I think that's more the fact that it ends up, and then I needed something to, to enact that was, that could play on the page, you know? And so I didn't, it wasn't calculated really. And, and then, and then because it came, because of Hurricane Sandy, which hit New York like two months before the publication, the reception of the book, the context within which it was read, the cultural and social context changed dramatically to the point where, you know, I remember on book tour, everyone would say, is this your book about Sandy? And I'd have to wow. say, actually, it took, it took, I didn't write this last month. It took me six years, you know, to, to, write, to write. And, but it also, I think a book that my, one of my anxieties about the publication was that people would think the whole thing was far-fetched. That there's like some fantasy, there's a fantasy novel. And in fact, because of Sandy, it was the opposite. People said, oh, this is a documentarian novel. And I'd have to say, no, that, you know, and, it, and, and also the, the public attention was focused on the climate aspect of it, which is fine. You know, I've, I've, you know, I've nothing against that, but it, it is, it wasn't intended uh, to land squarely the way it did. Okay. One more question on odds against tomorrow. And that's, you know, we're climate investors, you know, so we are the plutocrats who will get slaughtered when the revolution comes. And we're deeply interested in the finances around climate. Well, okay, just me, not Molly. <laughs> Molly's not getting slaughtered. I'm a very nice plutocrat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in your book, Financial Vultures, Capitalizing Off Disaster or Fear of Disaster play a pretty big role. And, you know, the climate crisis continues to unfold apace. Do you think we'll see more specialized predators, so to speak, emerge as the climate crisis unfolds? I mean, we have enough, I think. I mean, we're pretty good. <laughs> we're pretty well stocked. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that it's funny, like, you, since you're, you're interested in nonfiction and fiction, that, that whole premise of a consulting, so Mitchell works at a consulting firm in Wall Street that is hired to predict worst case scenarios through this kind of financial loophole 
that indemnifies their clients that if you know if we hire future world to to tell us all the bad things that happen we've done our due diligence and if something actually happens we're protected legally that that idea was conveyed or what i thought was that idea my under- <laughs> you know what's in the book was conveyed to me by a friend who worked on wall street and he said there's you're not going to believe it there's this new thing and and he explained he explained what's in the book and i said that's crazy i want to i want to need to write about that and i thought it was just going to be a magazine piece like this the most cynical corporate you know malfeasance and i started to interview people in that world and essentially risk analysts and and uh, people who worked for these some of these firms i was i was in i was working in, in near the financial district at the time at the the paris review which is downtown in new york and everyone said like yeah this you're right there's a version of this that goes on but there's nothing exactly right. I don't, you know, no, no, everyone was kind of confused. And basically the short, short version of the story is I had made it, I had, I had taken some leaps, like based on what my friend told me or some misunderstandings. And it turned out what, what I wrote about didn't exactly exist. But then I also knew someone in state politics and I asked him like, could this exist? And he said, yes, it'd be very easy for a state senator to introduce this legislation. And this is what, so, so I did figure out like a possible loophole that could be exploited. You know, I gave the key to a future generation of very cynical climate uh, ex- exploiting plutocrats. So it, it, that, that holds up. A whole new reason to listen to Futureverse, ideas to prey on the innocent. To prey on the innocent, yeah, and to profit from from dread. But of course, it it I think it works narratively because of you, you get the sense that this is happening at all levels of our economy. That there's the same kind of predatory investment and and indemnification, and that the benefits are not distributed equally, the costs are not distributed equally, and so it's 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 morally consistent with where things stand. And yeah, I don't see that going away. As we're about to turn to losing Earth and some of the journalism work, I mean. I would say no question we find ourselves in a scenario where we're selling risk and we're and risk is becoming a motivator for some climate action but you know another kind of big theme in this book is is what preparation could have done and so we imagine risk scenarios and we try to mitigate risk but none of that actually results in wide scale preparation of the type that would save lives or, I don't know, slow down the climate crisis. Right. And that, that's, I think, a central sort of moral uh, argument or theme in the in the book is, is between, you know, what is right financially, economically, and what's right morally. And they usually don't track on to one another. And, you know, there are moments, there's a moment near the end of the novel where his partner, Jane, sees a way to continue to profit out of this line of work, the same kind of cynical type of work. And she's not a bad person necessarily. She's just working in this capitalistic system and she's and she sees a way in or, or a way to profit. And but Mitchell has had this whole kind of moral awakening and, and a transformation and he's he's uh you know, he's he's disgusted by the prospect. But but it was very important for me to show that it's not that he's right and she's wrong. It's that these are these are different approaches that people can have and that 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 there's a lot of gray area in between and each side can go off the deep end to absurdity and narcissism and all the rest. And it's not so simple as heroes and villains often. I mean, we, there are plenty of villains, uh, certainly, to go around, but but there's there is a wide gulf of sort of gray area that I think Mitchell and Jane fall in. And it was very important for me to preserve the moral tension there between them, that it doesn't become a hero and villain story. It becomes about 
to people trying to navigate through this very troubling terrain where it feels there are no right answers. That's a perfect segue then, I think, to Losing Earth, which is a, a nonfiction story that still takes us on this journey with some of the key actors who pushed climate change uh, into the political agenda in the 80s. You talk about how 1989 was kind of this critical policy turning point where the U.S. government appeared to really retreat, uh, arguably abandon real action on climate change. Where would summarize a little bit of that work for us, if you would, and then tell us where you'd put us now on the hope versus despair dial. Yeah. Well, you know, I, first of all, it's just refreshing to talk about these two books back to back because I really felt like they're the same book on some deep, deep genetic level, obviously completely different stories and different periods and, and forms, but essentially it's the nonfiction version of this story, how, how to navigate this and, and the frustrations and the hypocrisies and so on. But, but the short version is by, by 1979, the scientific consensus on climate change was established and the for the first time, the conversation moved from the science and the technicalities of understanding of CO2 in the atmosphere to possible solutions and political solutions. So the beginning of a political process begins in earnest, 1979. And Losing Earth is the story of, a, of a, just a handful of people and, and predominantly one person, Rafe Pomerantz, who for most of the decade is, I think, quite literally the only climate activist, in, in, at least in the U.S. And he comes, it, it's very hard for him. And, and this is something that I think is very confusing and surprising to gen, uh, this generation of activists. And very difficult for him to convince the world of environmental activism, which of which he's a product. He comes out of Friends of the Earth, founded by David Brower, the Sierra Club, to convince them that climate change, global climate change, is an environmental problem that they can address through their hmm. forms of fundraising and, and, and politics and so on. And so it's a story of Rafe and a couple scientists, James Hansen, a couple politicians, including Al Gore, who uh, armed with this terrifying information, essentially they're like the Mitchell Zickers of, the, of, this, of this period, bring it to everyone power that they can and try to figure out a way to uh, solve the problem or at least mitigate it. And over the course of the decade, there are a bunch of you know false starts and, and ups and downs. But by the end of, of, of the 80s, we're on the precipice of what's seen at the time as a solution, which is a global treaty to reduce carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. It's the first iteration of what the IPCC process, at which point it all falls apart, right? As they're about to sign a sort of draft of intent that would be signed by every environmental minister in the world uh, just about in 1989. And, and then you have this total sort of quick breakdown, political breakdown of where, where the issue becomes extremely partisan. The oil and gas industry begins its, this concerted uh, disinformation campaign to try to destroy any possible um, policy or action. And you get to the, the paralysis that we've, we've been in ever since. So the, the book is about this this kind of golden period between 79 and 89, where there was political possibility, there was pretty impressive political consensus across parties, and there was a mechanism that was introduced and, and put in place that was seen as the answer. And yet it, it all resulted in failure, even before you have the ascendance of the oil and gas industry as this, this behemoth through, the, through this uh, disinforma behemoth disinformation campaign. So it's a tragedy, <laughs> unfortunately, and, but it's it's an effort to try to grapple with 
you know, not just why did the politics break down, but what is it about this problem that is so bedeviling to people who, you know, even that even when they agree on the substance have have time and time again found it so difficult to reach uh, solutions. And where would you put us just to tack on Molly's last question on the hope versus despair dial? Where are we now? I really, you know, it's a good question. I really try to, I, I try to resist the framing of hope and despair. I, I love that. I love that. And we do too, for the most part. It's a very mm-hmm. American conception that is really a foreign, you know, when I spoke about the book abroad is is really causes confusion. It's a kind of Hollywood idea of, you know, will the bad guys right. win or will we save the day? And of course, the truth is there's a wide range of outcomes possible, right. but it's an honest question. Like, yes, are you, you know, it's also a way out. It's easy. It's a sort of an easy out. Maybe it's more like if you wrote that book today, <laughs> much like right. Odds Against Tomorrow, what would right. you change? <laughs> right. No, I, I don't know that I would change much either, but I think, I think carbon, I mean, you know, carbon emissions continue to rise. Yep. Sort of all you need to know. I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, the numbers keep going up. One very dramatic shift has occurred, I think, which happened after I wrote the first version of the book, which is the emergence in really in 2018. The emergence, I should say, on a broad scale, this is not something that started then, but politically, the emergence of a new line of, of activism, a new kind of moral yes. argument that was advanced particularly by young people and, and you know, youth-led activist groups to understand the issue as, a, as not just a political crisis, but a moral crisis. And to, to speak of the problem in moral terms and to redirect their appeals from a language of reason, essentially, to one of morality. And by which, you know, the argument, one of the striking things about this period that I wrote about through the eighties is that, you know, the arguments that, that the advocates are making people like Pomerantz or James Hansen are the same ones that basically were continued to be made for the decades that followed, which is to say, we have the science, we know what to do. We need to act as soon as possible. The sooner we act, the better, the longer we wait, the more screwed we are. And of course, all of that's you know true, but right. it's essentially the assumption of that kind of claim which is also the Al Gore claim. It's you know increasingly it's expressed in increasingly kind of higher pitch over the years um, <laughs> with more charts. But it's yes. essentially that argument that goes from 1979 you know through till 2018 is the dominant argument. And I think the lesson of that period is that that's not enough. You know, right. it's not enough politically, at least in this country, to say it would be. This is the prudent thing to do. Let me prove it. That doesn't right. move the dial actually. And so, the real question is is, you know, what, what is necessary politically? And I think that we've seen a real shift politically in the way this issue is spoken about, the language that's used, the emotion that's used. And, and I think it's more honest. And so I think, and I think that will have some real, and already has had some real political dividends. So, you know, to, to, if you, if you are looking for hope, I would I would look to it there that the language the conversation has shifted quite dramatically and really for the first time in in the history of this problem in the last five years and I think that um, is a necessary it was a necessary sort of first step to meaningful a meaningful policy response I don't think it's a coincidence that the you know the Biden's the IRA is you know by far the most effective climate bill 
past, I, you know, I think it's connected to the fact that the politics around the issue have started to shift quite dramatically. Thank you for that. That was super interesting and insightful. I, I feel better, just so, just, so, just so we say that. I want to touch on Second Nature briefly, but, you know, it's just a super interesting book and you talk about a post-natural world. Is that a cynic's view? Is that an optimist view? Or do you, do you want to reject those trade labels and call it something else? You know, are you you view it as a good thing or a bad thing or a terrible thing or something else? Yeah, I think it's a it's a realist realistic thing. I mean, I think this has been a conversation in environmental history for many years that the idea of nature or of wilderness is itself is a fantasy that there, that you know as long as human beings have been around, we've been interacting and and putting our imprint on the natural world, and you know. There's there's a very strong argument first really made by William Cronin back in the 1995 that not only is the idea of wilderness and sort of the natural world um, an illusion, but that speaking of it, idealizing it in that way is actually destructive, and that goes against our our goals. That it entails a kind of fetishization of um, the non-human world that actually imperils it because it reflects a certain kind of class consciousness. It reflects a certain kind of colonial way of looking at, at, at nature. And it also suggests that hum, if humanity is sort of is poisoning the planet, then the only solution is to remove humanity. It, you know, it kind of, the logic follows towards a kind of radical anti-human um, ideology, which of course there is, you know, some people in the environmental movement support that. But no, I think I think what the book is about is it starts with the understanding that there's no such thing as the natural world, that every single square inch of land has been reconfigured by humanity, mostly recklessly and not consciously um, or with any calculation. But and so once you once you start there, then you have to recognize you have to kind of take more responsibility as a result, I think, individually and as a society to, well, okay, if we are if we're monkeying with every aspect of of this planet, what is the way uh, what is the most responsible way to live in it and to move forward? And so the book is a collection of stories, nonfiction stories about first people coming to terms with this reality and the implications of what that means, this idea that there's really nothing natural, that everything is, some reflection of humanity and, and reflection of our um, good deeds and our bad deeds. And and then this the second part is people trying to navigate through the weirdness of life now, coming to that recognition and, and the strangeness of being in a kind of, in a world that is so deeply human and yet that we so often want to feel pristine or natural. And then the final part are stories about people who are trying to imagine more responsible ways of conducting ourselves in the future when human intervention will only be enhanced and and mm-hmm. and more extreme and so there there all of the stories are ways to try to grapple with the strangeness of our current predicament and try to understand a way forward and to to have you know how do we preserve the values that are important to us in a world that we can't recognize uh, or in a world that's increasingly a mirror of our of our own desires and and uh, and of our own sort of sins, <laughs> and and so there are stories about people who are trying to to solve that problem. Thank you. It's interesting. I want to sort of pick up on and and at least my 
set of questions with this idea of narratives, because, you know, you're sort of talking about, you've, we've now touched on multiple narrative approaches politically in, in your work. You've talked before about expanding these narratives. Like certainly I, I do an outside podcast called Everybody in the Pool that's like, hey, enough problem porn. Let's talk about who's fixing what here. And I wonder what other new narratives do you see emerging and how important is that still in terms of changing the way that we talk about this to make it more holistic or honest or inspiring or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, the work that excites me is not work that is concentrated on, whether fiction or nonfiction, it's not concentrated on best outcomes or the worst outcome, not dystopias or, or utopias or even outcome-focused work. It's, it's work about trying to examine what this new landscape is doing to us as people, you know? So it's not, it's not work that is trying to give answers. It's work that asks questions. And so I, I see it the most in fiction, which wasn't always the case. Most fiction tended to be very dystopian. I was very careful in writing Odds Against Tomorrow that it didn't feel, I didn't want it to feel dystopian. I wanted, you know, there's a disaster, but it's not the drama, you know, you're in the middle, you're, you're in this sort of murky terrain and morally, you know, there's moral tension. And so I don't know, I think of like, there's a wonderful Japanese novelist, young novelist from Hiroshima named Hiroko Oyamada, who I don't think she ever mentions the word climate change or environment in her work, but she has these three short novels that are very much about these themes and about the weirdness and creepiness of the world as it is now. They're sort of right on the edge of fantasy and they're full of the same kind of emotions and that we have of anxiety and hope and the uncanny. You know, Jeff Vandermeer is, a, is another writer who's very, his stories are very good on this. His book Annihilation was made into a, a movie, Natalie Portman. Who else? Amitav Ghosh is a novelist and, and, a, and literary critic who has written really beautifully about why are conventional forms of storytelling struggle to engage these issues on a deep level, you know? And, and so he's written beautifully both in his fiction and in nonfiction about it. Terry Tempest Williams is another model for me who writes about the West and environmental issues, but is from an oil and gas family you know, of people who right. lay pipe in the West for generations. And so she's, she has sympathy for that view of the world as well, for the frontier spirit, even as she abhors what it's done. And so it, it exists in this, you know, people who can write about places where it's more, there, there's moral complication, where it's not black and white. Now, there, there are plenty of spheres in environmental issues where there are black and white. Like there are people who do horrible things and there are people who are <laughs> heroic and I think that's really valuable to tell their stories too, but that's not where I focus my own energies. And it's, and frankly, it's not where I'm, that I, what I'm most interested in reading about. I'm reading, I'm interested in reading about stories in which there's no, you know, we're, we're past the, when we're past, we're past the place in a lot of the, these environmental spheres of, of easy solutions. You know, there were maybe easier solutions in 1979. We're kind of, that, right. that ship has sailed. Doesn't mean that we're faded to complete total disaster, but that often what we have are trade-offs. And so stories about the trade-offs that are difficult to tell are the ones that I find the most rewarding, where the outcomes are a bit more in doubt and the sort of moral valence is a bit more complicated. I, I, those I find are more honest, more sophisticated, and frankly, more entertaining stories to, to read about. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as as heavy readers, which which is how Molly and I, in a fit of madness, decided to launch this podcast. We we share your views that it's it's the complexities that make something interesting and entertaining to read. Okay, we have our last question, and you kind of foreshadowed an extreme reluctance to answer it. We're going to ask it anyway. Uh, <laughs> do you have plans to write any more climate fiction? And even if you don't want to answer that question, uh, are there any themes that have caught your attention recently? Uh, yeah, I mean, I sort of feel like you can't avoid it. I mean, I find myself, you know, feeling like if you're reading a book that's set, you know, a realistic novel, say, that's set in the present day, that has no awareness of this issue, you know, it doesn't, again, doesn't mean they have to mention climate change or have does, there doesn't have to be a tree in the book or whatever, but that doesn't capture some element of the kind of dread, the sort of dawning awareness of our predicament, the eeriness of living at a time that's, you know, the hottest year on record and the coldest year of the rest of our lives. You know, that doesn't try to negotiate that in some way. It feels dishonest. It'd be like reading a novel written in 1945 that doesn't mention in Europe, that doesn't mention the war. You know, it's like at a certain point, you're kind of lying to the reader if you, you know. And so I even if I don't set out to write like a climate, I can't really imagine setting out to write a climate novel, capital C, but I also can't imagine writing a novel that doesn't reflect at least one that's set in this, even one that's not set in this time. I think if it's written in this time, that doesn't reflect some element of that, of that, of what is really the zeitgeist, I think it would feel false. So I I think it's unavoidable at this point, but, but yeah, I might also do it in a more directed way. We'll see. But it, it's sort of you can't. You are can't you doing it? it? <laughs> a, are are you doing it in a more directed I'm way? Like maybe sure. right now with the <laughs> novel? In fact, right, right after this <laughs> podcast recording. <laughs> All right, off the hook officially, Nathaniel. Thank you so much for talking to us. We're big fans. I could not have consumed Odds Against Tomorrow faster or recommended it to more people. Not to mention all the other great work that you do. It's thank just you. been our honor to have you share thank your you. insights. I, I, and your I'm thoughts. honored to. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. And and it's really uh, great speaking with you. And, and it's always a thrill to speak with people who are serious readers and thinking about these things in, in a serious way. It's, um, it's a lot of fun for me as well. So with that, we come to the end of this episode of Futureverse. A huge thank you to Nathaniel Rich for talking to us about his novel Odds Against Tomorrow, as well as his nonfiction books Losing Earth and Second Nature. You can find out more about Nathaniel and his works on his website, nathanielrich.com. We are very excited to see what he writes next. If you have any thoughts on this episode or suggestions for future episodes, please email us at futureverse at substack.com. Futureverse at substack.com. You can also visit futureverse.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information. Thank you for listening.